The thing about an ex-Jodcaster, he's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he hits record. And those black eyes roll over white men. Uh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched scream. It's an intro. Intro! There's an intro here! The Jodcast. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. With Megan Argo, David Alt, John Field, Jen Gupta, Liz Guzman, Stuart Harper, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, July 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm David Alt and I have a problem. No, hang on. I'm David Alt and I'm an ex-Jodcaster. Yes, <laughs> I think that's what we agreed, isn't it? I don't know. And with me today are other ex-Jodcaster Jen and the wonderful Megan Argo. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. <clears throat> I think before we get started, we should probably all explain to the listeners what we've been doing instead of Jodcasting. So, Dave, what have you been up to recently? What have I been up to since January 2011 when I left? Yes. Or July 2011 when we last presented together. This is true, yes. We'd just done the... Wait, um... we also did January this year. Did we? Did we? Did we not? <laughs> I, I can't remember. <laughs> I, I did in January. Should we start this again? <laughs> no, 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 no. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, since uh, so certainly for this year, what I have been doing is that I have been make, doing the Big Bang West Midlands and East Midlands. So these are the two science festivals that, or the regional fairs that link to the main national Big Bang, which happens in March. Uh, and that was though our two regional fairs were this week, which means that I'm rather tired today. Um, but we had two thousand people come through and see our science fairs. Um, half of that in Birmingham, half in Nottingham. Jen, what have you been doing? I've been finishing my PhD thesis. <laughs> Yay! <Woo>! Have you submitted? <laughs> and I finally submitted it on Tuesday, which was the 26th of June. So this week I've been relaxing, but also applying for jobs. And I'm unfortunately leaving Manchester in a few weeks. So this may well be my last job cast. Boo! Hmm. Okay. Well, just because you leave Manchester doesn't mean you have to stop doing the jobcast. That's true. This is true. I've been I've been foreign correspondent for what six years now. <laughs> <laughs> true. Dave, should we get on with the show? Certainly. Uh, in the show this time, we have interviews about active galactic nuclei and exoplanets. We talked to Ian Morrison about his adventures to observe the Venus transit earlier this year, and we find out what you can see in July night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, here's Stuart Harper. In the news this month, the sun loses its bow shock, using white dwarfs to date the Milky Way, and the origins of methane on Mars. The sun generates powerful stellar winds, which launch jets of ionised material, known as plasma, out through the solar system. On Earth, the effects of these winds manifest as the auroras ghostly emerald waves that are seen above the polar skies. However, these winds will continue to travel much further, travelling at speeds far exceeding 1 million kilometres per hour, blowing out a bubble in the surrounding interstellar medium called the heliosphere. Its boundary, called the heliopause, marks a point through which neither the sun's plasma can escape or the surrounding interstellar plasma can penetrate. It is at this boundary that the sun's domain ends and the powerful winds of other stars and supernovae take over. Currently, it lies somewhere beyond 121 astronomical units, which is the current distance of the Voyager 1 space probe, the most distant man-made object. It is what happens outside the heliopause that is under debate due to new results from NASA's Interstellar Boundary Explorer, IBEX. Previously, it was expected that outside the heliopause, the supersonic winds from the interstellar medium collide with the solar winds as the sun orbits the galaxy. This results in a great arc forming around the sun in the direction it is moving. 
much like the waves formed around the bow of a ship as it cuts through the water. This phenomenon is referred to as the bow shock. Unfortunately, IBEX has found that this cannot be the case since measurements of neutrally charged atoms that can pass through the heliosphere and into the inner solar system suggest that the overall speed of the interstellar winds is much too slow to be able to form the bow shock. The interpretation of the IBEX result is that the Sun is, in fact, moving much more slowly than the, through the interstellar medium than previously thought. This leaves an open question as to how the environment beyond the heliopause behaves. Although there are expectations for what will be discovered, perhaps the ultimate answer will not be obtained until the Voyager 1 space probe finally passes the boundary into truly interstellar space. The Milky Way has three main components, which can be split into. The disk, where most star formation within the galaxy occurs, and our own sun resides. The bulge, which is a spherical orb packed densely with many old stars residing at the centre of the galaxy. And finally, this is all contained within a halo, a region of very sparsely populated space containing very old stars and globular clusters. To be able to determine the history of all these Milky Way features, requires the precise dating of the stars which, can, which they contain. Unfortunately, the techniques that are currently known can only obtain the ages of stars to within an accuracy of about 1 to 2 billion years. A new technique for determining the age of a population of stars has been proposed by Jason Kalirai from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. The method involves observing the burning cinders of extinguished stars of 1 to 8 solar masses. These remnants are called white dwarfs. Colorized method involves observing only the recently formed white dwarfs, and then by estimating the white dwarf's mass, he can determine the age of the progenitor star. This can be done since the mass of the white dwarf, the mass of the parent star, and the age of the parent star are all related. The dating technique by Calari allows for stellar populations to be dated to an accuracy of less than 1 billion years. This could allow for the greater distinction to be made between the stars contained within the Milky Way halo. It expected that the stars within the halo were formed by mergers with dwarf galaxies early in the history of the Milky Way. However, it is thought that there will be a difference in ages between the inner halo stars, which are closer to the galactic centre, than the stars further away in the outer halo. This is because it is expected that the stars in the outer halo blew away all the gas after a single star burst. This is because it was expected that the stars in the outer halo blew away all the gas after a single burst of star formation, meaning all the stars within the outer halo will be all from a similar period of time. All that is required now is for colorized method to be applied to many more white dwarfs, so the measurements of the ages within the inner and outer halos become statistically significant. And finally, the atmosphere of Mars, the Earth's nearest neighbouring planet after Venus, in recent years has been found to contain considerable quantities of methane gas. Interestingly, this gas is also dependent on the seasons of Mars, with Martian summers having considerable more methane present in the atmosphere than Martian winters. The origin of the methane gas is currently not well understood, and there are many theories that have been proposed as an explanation. From geological processes to life on Mars, Unfortunately, it is expected that neither life nor geology could produce large quantities of methane that is observed by themselves, or explain the seasonal dependence. Researchers from the Max Planck Institute have suggested that there is another method for which methane can be produced in large quantities on Mars. A way in which previously overlooked due to the expected contribution being extremely small. In the laboratory, they have exposed fragments of the Murchison meteorite, which is a carbonaceous meteorite that landed in Australia in 1969, to a simulated Martian atmosphere. The difference between the Martian and Earth atmospheres are quite dramatic, with temperatures dropping below minus 120 degrees centigrade at night, air which is mostly composed of carbon dioxide, and most critically for the Max Planck researchers, is that it is exposed to extremely energetic ultraviolet radiation from the sun. It was found that upon exposing ground-up fragments of the Murchison meteorite to similar levels of ultraviolet radiation as found on the Martian surface, a large quantity of methane was released from its internal structure, 
Therefore, since the Murchison meteorite is expected to be representative of most carbonaceous meteorites within our solar system, it is expected that much of the surface of Mars could be littered with many tiny fragments from these meteors. Therefore, depending on if it is the Martian summer or winter, these meteors will be exposed to different levels of the sun's ultraviolet rays and emit significant quantities of methane. Of course, the researchers at the Max Planck Institute do point out that even this significant contribution of methane to the atmosphere on Mars is not enough to explain all of it, meaning that other sources, including life, could still be needed. Thanks for that, Stuart. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, eight years ago, I remember being on top of Jodrell Bank looking at the Venus transit. Well, not obviously looking directly at it, but at the transit of Venus party. And this year, Ian Morrison went to see it again. And our first interview is Mark speaking to him all about his travels. Now, you normally hear Ian Morrison doing our night sky segment on the Jogcast, but this month he's travelled halfway around the world to look at the sky during the daytime. That's absolutely right. Why was that? Well, I have relatives in South Island, New Zealand, and from there it was in principle possible to see the whole of the transit of Venus, and I was invited to go on board a little ship, only about 10 passengers and three crew, to go to a place called Astronomer's Point in what's called Dusky Sound. Now, in 1769, Captain Cook went to Tahiti, to observe the transit of Venus, and the measurements he took there were some of the very best. And that actually helped give a value of the astronomical unit of about 153 million kilometres. It's about 149, so it wasn't far out. Following that, he actually circumnavigated the whole of the coast of New Zealand. He showed it was two islands. And right in the southwest, he noted what he called Dusky Bay. Well, on his second world trip, he went back to Dusky Bay, which actually is the entrance to a fjord we call Dusky Sound. And they stayed for five months in a little harbour found by his lieutenant Pickerskill, it's called Pickerskill's Harbour, where they laid the boat up and did all the sorts of things that you have to do, sorted out all the sails and everything. But on a little knoll next to it, his astronomer had the trees felled and they set up an observatory to measure the position and in fact, for many, many, many years, it was the most precisely known location in the Southern Hemisphere. So they used the observations of the stars. Exactly. And they had um, sextants and, and, and telescopes do that. So that was really a lovely spot, bit of history there. Anyway, it was thought that might be a nice place to go and have a look at the transit or look for the transit. So we sailed down the coast, rather rough actually, on the way there. The night before, in fact, or the afternoon, it, the, the clouds cleared. Now, we knew that... From Stellarium, I put in the position of Astronomer's Point that when the first and second contacts occurred, the sun would be about 12 to 13 degrees elevation at an azimuth of 37 degrees. Now, in fact, there are mountains there, and we measured their elevation with a meter rule and a, a, a piece of cardboard. They subtended 10 centimeters at one meter, which is a tenth of a radian, which is about six degrees. Right. So we knew that was no problem. But there were little islands in the sound as well, and so we had to make sure we could find a spot where they weren't in the way. We knew the azimuth, so that worked out well. And the plan was for our boat to actually sail in the opposite direction so we could observe the transit from the back deck. Now, you might say, well, why not go on land? Well, all the trees have grown at Astronomer's Point, and on the fjords there, the um, rainforest just drops right down steeply to the sea. That There aren't any beaches, so we did it on board ship. Anyway, it was clear that morning I had image-stabilised binoculars with Barda solar film filters. It was very hard to actually spot the time of what they call first contact when Venus first sort of intrudes on the disk of the Sun. The turbulence was pretty bad because it was quite low elevation. But I did time the second contact using my Seiko coronagraph, which I'd synchronized using my GPS system. So that's the point when it's completely... That's right, and that's one of the, the two sun. key measurements you need to make. Now, we were able to watch Venus the rest of the day. In fact, it was quite interesting, really, through some lovely um, New Zealand solar filters, it had a lovely sharp, clear disc against the sun's face. But it really shouldn't. Venus was then 58 arc seconds across. Now, the resolution of the human eye is only, at best, about 30 arc seconds. It should have been a little fuzzy ball. Mm. But it just shows you that our eye, or our brain, does quite a bit of image processing of what we think we see. It looked beautiful. It's the same thing, I think. When we look at the moon in the sky, it has a lovely sharp edge. Well, really, it should be slightly blurred. 
but he isn't. So our brain is a very useful thing. So it was assuming it was a circle then. Exactly. I mean, the brain says it must be a circle. And it was a lovely circular black disc. It was brilliant. Mm. Well, we didn't really think we were going to have a chance to see the third and fourth contacts because then the sun would only be about seven degrees elevation. And we had seen a cloud bank over in the northwest, which is where it was going to set. But nevertheless, we actually sailed out of the sound to some extent. So we had a clear view. And amazingly, the sun was still visible above the clouds at third contact, which I also timed. But as we can, went from third to fourth contact, it actually sort of dropped down in the clouds. You could still see the top of the sun, but from us, the actual Venus was right down on the bottom left, so we missed that. So but how, nevertheless, we saw all but about six minutes, which is pretty good. So how long was it moving across the disk? At the uh, about six hours. So six hours you were... Well, we didn't look at keeping, it all the time. No, we kept, an, eye kept an eye on it. We actually went on uh, land. We, we came across a lovely little crash of seals, about 20 little baby seals, a great fun. They were not the least bit afraid of us. And we obviously went up to Astronomer Point, which is sort of a national monument now. There's a trig point there. Now, I've got these two times. I've got times of second and third contact. And in principle, those are what you could use in a method devised by Edmund Halley to help measure the distance of Venus and hence the astronomical unit. You needed to have someone who'd made observations elsewhere. And I found an Australian website that enabled you to choose a partner. And I chose a partner at Anchorage in Alaska at plus 61 degrees. Now, I was at minus 45 latitude. The baseline on the Earth was over 10,000 kilometers, and I doubt that any pair of observations has <laughs> ever had a longer baseline mm. to measure the parallax of Venus. Now, I said it was quite difficult to do the timings, and I was very conservative. If I put the precise times I'd measured into the system, I got 136 million kilometers, which is fairly low. However, I reckon that for about one minute prior to second contact, and one minute after the timing I took of third contact, I wasn't really sure. Now, they say there's about a 12-second error due to what's called the black drop effect, but for us it was turbulence. So it's not impossible that my times were either late or early by about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. oh, you could argue about that, but that was the midpoint of when I wasn't sure or not. So if I put in those times, 30 seconds different, which made a total of one minute extra in total length, I got 146 million kilometres, which actually is in striking distance of 149. So I was quite place. pleased with that. So I sort of helped try to make a measurement of the astronomical unit. And I'd just like to finish by saying that the first highly precise, unambiguous measurement of the distance of Venus was made here at Jodrell Bank with the Mark I telescope, it was then, I'm looking out at it now, by a CW radar in the mid-60s. And I joined that radar group just after they'd made that measurement, but they were still observing Venus by radar. So it's a rather nice little bit of history. Yeah, it's something people have been trying to nail down for a long time. I mean, did, did Captain Cook's observations also contribute to a decent value? They the... did, yes. In fact, they were some of the very best of the, that particular 1769 transit. And together with other observations, both then and in the previous one, which was eight years earlier, they got 153. So that wasn't too far out either. Cook and his astronomer called Green, Charles Green, they were dissatisfied because they weren't really aware of the so-called black drop effect when they went. It's as though Venus sort of sticks to the edge of the sun for quite a few seconds. And is that Venus's atmosphere? No, it's actually caused by our atmosphere. Right. They now know it's an effect of turbulence in our atmosphere that does it. And there's something very similar. If you actually hold your two fingers together just before they touch your thumb and first finger... It looks as though they're touching when they're not. Mm. Now, that may or may not have anything to do with it, but certainly now people believe it's due to the atmosphere of the Earth. And images from spacecraft do it much better and don't really show this black drop effect. But certainly the turbulence was pretty enormous when I saw the second contact, mm. so I'm not surprised mm. I wasn't that accurate. But at least I had a try. That was yeah. fun. And that perhaps was... I mean, we should finish off by explaining why it's... Um, such a special event when Venus actually moves across the disk of the Sun. Well, it's probably the rarest of all astronomical phenomena. It happens twice, eight years apart, and then there's a separation of about 105 years and about 117 years. I think the next pair will start in 2117. So that means, in fact, with that over 100-year gap, quite a lot of astronomers will never actually see it. Right. Their life will be between 
time to do it. Obviously, a lot will see one, and they tend actually, one of them tends to be visible in the northern hemisphere better, and one in the southern, and this time it was the southern. Last time, we had a wonderful view of the transit here at Jodrell Bank. Yes. Uh, it was a lovely, clear morning. It was it's fantastic, and I discovered some pictures of us taking pictures of it through my six-inch scope at the time. So, I was quite lucky, I think. Not many astronomers will ever have seen two, so I no. count myself quite lucky to be amongst that number. So, worth going to New Zealand? It was worth it. I mean, it, really, it was a long trip. I was travelling for about four days there and back because it was a day to get down to the southern part of New Zealand by coach, 11-hour trip. Then it was a day to actually go out on the boat to, to get down to Dusky Sound. So literally about four days travel, but it was worth it. Well, thank you very much for telling us about that. Thanks for that, Mark. And on the subject of Venus transits, I thought I'd just make you guys feel a little bit old by saying that the last Venus transit in 2004... I remember seeing it because I'd gone into college to do my A-level revision. Man. Yeah. There we go. Well, we had a lovely time, didn't we, Megan? We did. We had an awesome Transit of Venus party at Jodrell. We had 400 yes. people, lots of school kids, and it was great. Very, very early morning, though. Yeah. At least it was clear. At least we saw something. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> and now we just have to wait till 2117 to do it all again. It's already in my calendar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, for our next interview, Liz spoke to Dr. Paolo Padovani about Radio Loud and Radio Quiet Active Galactic Nuclei. Hello, this is Liz Guzman and I'm here with Dr. Paolo Padovani from ESO, the European Southern Observatory in Munich, Germany. Um, he gave a talk about Radio Deep Sky and the solution to a 50-year-old puzzle. Hello, Paolo. Thank you for being with us. Hi. So, so for starting, tell us about what was the puzzle that, that you solved. The puzzle has to do with the, the discovery of quasars, which were discovered almost 50 years ago okay. by Monty Schmidt in the US. And um, he discovered quasars as the optical uh, counterparts of strong radio sources at the time. But then he was quickly realized that there were many sources in the sky, very similar to quasars, with very strong, broad lines but which were not radio sources. They were not detected by the radio telescope at the time. They were called radio quiet. Okay. It was realized later on that these radio quiet quasars are not radio quiet. They're just radio weak. Okay. They do emit in the radio band, but much less than the other ones. And the other ones are the classical radio galaxies, which we, which we see that people study here in Manchester, for example. And so for about 50 years, people have been debating uh, what's behind radio emission in these radio weak sources. And we discovered, we realized by studying them in the radio band, that they are not powered by the jets, the strong jets which we see in the other sources, but their radio emission is due to processes related to star formation. Stars evolve, they become uh, older, they die, they become supernovae, they make supernova remnants, and particles in these, in these remnants since they're moving in, in magnetic fields, they emit synchrotron radiation, which is seen as the radio band. So in these uh, sources, the radio emission has to do with star formation related processes. Okay, okay. So, so to clarify this, so you have, there's, there's mainly three different sources that you have here. So it's AGNs, which is active galactic nuclei, and then radio loud and radio quiet. Correct. Okay, so... Can you explain us a little bit, like, the difference between these three? So how, how to differentiate this one? So the AGN, we know AGN are things where at the center there is a black hole. Okay. Something which emits a lot of energy. People think that black holes are good at sucking in things, yeah. but not people, many people realize that actually they are also good at emitting a lot of radiation. Quasars are some of the brightest sources in the universe yeah. because they have black holes at the center. So... A minority of these quasars emit most of the energy in, in forms of jets. Jets are stringy, long things on the sky that emit radiation at all bands, from the radio, infrared, optical, and x-ray. Mm -hmm. The majority of this AGM, for some reason which you still don't understand, is not capable of producing these jets. Okay. They don't have any jets. They still do have radio emission, but the radio emission is coming from processes to do with star formation. Okay. And then we have star forming galaxies where there is no black hole or the black hole is actually dormant, not doing much. 
like our own Milky Way. Yeah. There is a black hole at the center. It's not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And these things emit in the radio band synchrotron radiation, again, due to star formation processes. Okay. Okay. So you have the radio loud, which are the ones with jets, and they have an active nuclei. Correct. So the... the the black hole in the center is very active. Correct. And it's emitting a lot of energy, but you also have really big Correct. Jets. Okay. And the radio quiet ones, um, you have emission from the disk, I guess, which is the... You still have the black hole, but okay. for some reason, the black hole is not very good at emitting in the radio band. Okay. And it emits mostly from the disk in the optical ultraviolet band. Yeah. Is this an evolutionary trend? I mean, does AGENs will become radio quiet and radio loud, or are they different objects? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Some people have ideas about it. I don't think there is any strong um, suggestion that this is the case. Okay. What we did do, and this is how we got to the conclusion that uh, how we solved the puzzle, we studied the evolution in the radio band, how things evolve, so how they, their power changes with time. Yeah. Four star-forming galaxies and radioquiet GN and radioactive GN. And we discovered that star-forming galaxies and radioquiet GN evolve in exactly the same way, which means that the process behind the radio emission has to be the same, yeah. unlike the radioactive GN, which are completely separate. Okay. Which makes a posteriori perfect sense, because radioquiet GN typically are in spiral galaxies, so the black hole has a galaxy around. The galaxy is forming stars. So you will have supernova remnants, and you will have radio emission coming from them. So a posteriori is not a big deal, but it took about 50 years to to solve. Yeah, when, when something is solved, it's like, yeah, it's, it was really easy, right? <laughs> Brilliant. That's that's really interesting. Okay, so first of all, you have a lot of surveys. You you had all these objects. So I guess one of the main thing is how to differentiate between each other. So so I guess what you have, you mentioned a lot of multi-wavelength um, Yes. Surveys. In in the old days, as I mentioned in my talk, um, you had a survey, you know, surveying in a given band, say X-ray or radio. To identify your sources, you could spend 10 years because you had a small sample and they were bright. You can go, you go into telescopes and observe them one by one. And by looking at the optical spectrum, you could tell this is a galaxy, an elliptical galaxy, this is a quasar, with broad lines, with narrow lines, and so forth. Nowadays, things have, are changing. Well, for two reasons. One is that many surveys are really huge, and you don't have the time to do that. Yeah. In our case, our survey is not big, but it goes really, really deep. Yeah. So once you want to do that, and you want to go to an optical telescope, and and you observe these things, they're too faint. Yeah. It would take you, say, days of survey, and nobody's going to give you that time, yeah, because the telescope time is expensive. Yeah. So... What we did, we found an alternative way of using all sorts of data because the area we studied is really, really well studied. So we had X-ray, infrared, optical, and uh, radio data. And we found, a, 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 how can I say, a process by which using all this data, you can classify sources based on their known properties. Okay. This is what we did. And this is very relevant, uh, again, in Manchester because deeper the surveys are going to face even tougher problems because their optical counterparts are going to be even fainter. Yeah. And so you won't be able to identify them classically. You have to use a similar method. Yeah. You mentioned the evolutionary map of the universe. Yes. And that's a survey. It's a survey which is part of the ASCAP, yeah. which is Australian Escape Finder. It's an Australian survey which includes many people, including myself and a couple of people here in Manchester. Mm-hmm. So that survey is going to go as deep as we did yeah. On an area, though, which is 150,000 times bigger. Oh, wow. So while we detected 200 sources, it's going to detect 60 million sources. <laughs> that's going to be tough. And half of them are going to be uh, quasars. Yeah. So that means 30 million quasars. Now, the number of known quasars until now, it's about 200,000. It's not, not even a million. So it's going to be a huge change. But... These things are potential numbers because, as I mentioned, they're going to be faint. You're going to need lots of data to identify them, but you won't have the data over the whole sky. You have them in small areas. So in small areas, you're okay. In other areas, you have to find clever and 
different ways to understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And this is this is before SKA, right? So Exactly. SKA is going to go even deeper. Yeah. And so the problems are going to be well, on one hand, an SKA image, as I mentioned in my talk, an SKA image covering an area which is a factor of three hundred larger than our area is going to detect as many quasars as we know today. Wow. Just that. Yeah. And if you go to a bit bigger thing, you get reasonably a million quasars. But the problem is the SKA is going to go really deep. Yeah. And so the problems I mentioned today are going to be amplified. Yeah. So again, either the astronomy becomes completely independent and mm -hmm. they're going to classify things and getting redshifts all from the radio band, which I think is going to be difficult, or as usual, we'll have to some areas are going to be better studied than others, and we'll do some things, and other areas we'll have to do less. That's as simple as that. Yeah, amazing things are coming, right? <laughs> um, I also wanted to ask you about the ELT. So tell us about it. How, what is it, and what is it going to do? Okay, the ELT, which is what um, I'm working on at the moment at ESO in, in Germany, means extremely large telescope. Yeah. It's it's the, the largest optical telescope, so telescope optical near infrared looking in the optical near infrared band ground-based the largest in the world now right now the biggest telescope which is seeing optical light the light that we see with our eyes is 10 meters in diameter yeah. this is going to be 39 meters in diameter wow made up of thousands of one meter hexagons yeah. connected all together and managed by a computer which is going to tell the hexagons how to move and how to behave in real time so that you have a perfect image. Amazingly complicated, never done before, and it's going to be a huge thing. You're going to be able to see really, really deep in the universe. Okay, so this telescope is um, similar to SALT, right, which is a telescope in South Africa Yes. Um, that uses these adaptive optics that exactly. have different hexagons and, and they yes. put it all together. But this is pretty much four times bigger. Yes. <laughs> so this is, okay. And what are you going to observe? I mean, I'm guessing it's very faint objects as well. Yes, there are various, well, you know, there are various, uh, uh, you know, big areas. One of them is planets. Okay, extrasolar planets. Extrasolar planets. Uh, this thing is, the resolution of this thing is going to be so large, much better than the Hubble, yeah. that you're going to be actually able to see small, tiny planets close to their stars. Oh, wow. So you're going to need a lot of, uh, you know, clever engineering, but uh, that's one of the plans. So being able to see planets not much, uh, not Almost, almost Earth-like, a bit bigger than Earth, but uh, around nearby stars. That's going to that's going to be an amazing thing. That that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, with Kepler, has detected a lot of exoplanets, but most of the techniques are indirect. Indirect, so correct. They, they don't see the planet, right? But with with the ELT, we're kind of trained to get the planet. Correct, and is... maybe getting a spectrum of them, which is really amazing because oh, then wow. you can see the atmosphere, right? As well, of course. Another big thing, I think, this is my biased view, <laughs> is you know about the expansion of the universe, right? We know it, we see it, we have many arguments about it. One of the major projects of the ELT is actually measuring the expansion of the universe by looking at quasar spectra over 20 years' time. Wow. And so that should give you a direct measurement of the way that the universe is expanding. Well, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. So normally, well, so far we have measured the expansion using supernova. Right. Um, so with quasars, you're aiming to measure the distances between them or? You're looking, from what I understand, yeah. you're looking at their lines. Yeah. And as time goes by, you see the effect that the expansion of the universe has on their broad lines. Okay. But you need a huge uh, time frame. So it's a project which is going to last more than 20 years. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why this telescope has to be up and running for, 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 for a while. Yeah. Very good news that it just got accepted this week, right? Yes, on Monday. on Monday. Yes. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for the interview. Thank you for the talk. Very interesting. <laughs> okay, thank you thank very you. much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for that, Liz. And our third interview, Libby spoke to Jakub Baczynski at NAM about confirming extrasolar planet candidates with a pirate observatory. Yar. Best acronym ever. Joining us on the Jokaste is Jakub Wachinski 
from the Open University and you work on detecting extrasolar planets. Can you tell us a bit about your work and what instruments you use to do so? Yeah, well, what we mainly do is we get data from SuperWOSF Consortium, uh, roll light curves, and try to follow them up with our telescope. We have a remote te- remotely operated telescope, Pirate. It stands on Mallorca. Uh, it's, you know, it's a semi-robotic telescope, which means that we have to upload a plan, observing plan to the telescope every day, and then it just goes and carries on observing for us every day on its own. The cool thing about it is uh, we don't really have to either go there, which, okay, is a little bit of a shame. We would love to be able to go to Mallorca. Uh, our supervisors are happy we do not have to. We do not waste time on the sunny <laughs> beaches there. Uh, instead, we sit in our offices and, uh, and observe. The cool thing is we will have no social lives whatsoever uh, every evening observing from the office. Fortunately, I was working on that uh, project for quite some time with my, our friends at Open University, and now we can operate a telescope using our mobile phones, which is absolutely brilliant and saves our social lives. <laughs> That's very good. So Super Wasp is a big, uh, it's got 11 cameras or something that photographs fields of the Eight. sky. Eight yeah. cameras mm-hmm. that fields of the sky, and then it detects sort of if a planet goes in front of it at the light, of a sun or yeah, some yeah. star it, the light dips and then so it does it photographs lots and lots of stars over a period of time and then so you get those dips for your survey and then you use your mobile phone we do yep. to uh, <laughs> to remote operate how how often do you get so how many numbers of dips and follow-ups do you do a day Mm, say, well, yeah, as you said, uh, what we were waiting for, what we want to see is a, a planet transit in front of the disk of its star, blocking part of the light, which causes a, a dip in brightness. And uh, such dips are of, of only, say, 1%. It's really hard to detect those. So we use our telescope to try searching for those. Uh, per night, I would try to see about two or three of those. We are in a very good position where there is, as you said, there is a Super Wasp um, consortium. They have two telescopes, Northern and Southern Hemisphere. Each has it consists of eight Canon lenses with CCD cameras on back, and each of those can uh, photograph the whole sky every seven minutes. And uh, they measure brightness of every star, 130 million stars in the whole sky, and uh, try to find which of those dip from time to time. They observe number of dips, and then identify best candidates. 40,000. Of those identified, best of the best of the best, uh, 2,500 at the moment. And these guys get passed on to me, so I already know where to look and I know what to look for. So every night I am actually able to see free transits of either planets or something else. What I actually try to do is, is look for the candidates, uh, the 2,500, and try to see whether these are actually planets or we call them mimics, so something else that could be mimicking the transit signal. There's a couple of things that could be there. It could be a blend, so two stars, one next to another. One goes into a very deep eclipse. It's eclipsing binary. It's not a planet. Another one just shines right next to it. But when we when you put them together, and Superwasp doesn't see two stars, it just sees one star, then it thinks there is only a very shallow dip there, and that identif- is identified as a planet. Another thing could be eclipsing binary. that flies One flies around another. But uh, there's this, uh, only an, a grazing eclipsing binary, which means that, that two, uh, one disk overlaps on the other one only slightly. So it causes only a slight dip in transit, uh, in light curve. And that, again, could be identified as a planet. We, using our telescope, which is larger than Superwatch telescopes, can uh, actually figure out whether this is a grazing eclipsing binary, whether this is a blend, or if it's a genuine planet. So how many planets have you detected? Uh, using that at the moment, uh, SuperWasp has detected over 60 uh, altogether. It is so far uh, the most successful search for transiting exoplanets. We actually beat Kepler. You're beating Kepler? We do. We are beating Kepler. Uh, so they have found, uh, according to the most recent uh, uh, statistics, I think uh, Kepler has found 62 planets. It might be already out of date. Uh, that <laughs> the field moves very quickly. Uh, so uh, Kepler has already found 62 planets. Uh, we have found at least 65. There's uh, more about to be published quite soon. Ooh. So uh, it's a number of those that we are finding. And uh, okay, yeah, let me let me remark on one more thing. Uh, a super wasp consortium altogether, uh, including all these us scientists and our equipment, etc., etc., has discovered so far more planets than Kepler, and uh, it's 250 times cheaper to run. <laughs> At two million in comparison to five hundred million dollars. That's a bit of a difference in uh, in yeah. in money, but also the detections. Are you sensitive to different planets? So is Kepler's 
can they, they detect a different size of planets compared to what you can detect? Yeah, they're better in finding smaller planets and further away uh, from this, their stars. Uh, we are better in finding hot Jupiters, so the massive, bloated, uh, hot Jupiter-looking like, like planets that are right next to their stars. Yeah, that's true. Uh, which is a good thing, I guess, because uh, the, the planets we are searching for are usually next to very bright stars, some are close to Earth, so it's easy for us later on to follow those up so we can have a closer look at, a, at the given system and figure out what's actually there. Kepler usually looks at a planet and, and figures out it's there, that's about it. We can actually then try to figure out, say, what is the atmosphere the sphere of such a planet um, composed of or whether there could possibly be life, be life there. Hey, wow, this sounds like such a cool, exciting field. I'm so glad that your social life has been saved by using your mobile yes. phone to do it. Yes. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much, too. Thanks for that, Libby. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So, Jen, what have you got for us this time? Well, as I said at the beginning of the show, I've been busy trying to finish my PhD thesis, so I've not managed to keep up to date with all the astronomy news. One thing I did find were some photos on Flickr that are star trails taken from the International Space Station. And these are awesome. They've been taken by Expedition 31 flight engineer Don Pettit. He's basically taken them in the same way that amateur astronomers take them from Earth. So he's in total taken a time exposure of about 10 to 15 minutes, but he split that up into shorter exposures of about 30 seconds each and then stacked them using imaging software and these are really really pretty and some of them you can see bits of the ISS and then the star trails in the background and yes they're very awesome so I'll put a link on the show notes so that everyone else can go and check those out. And following on from the June Extra edition, Jen do you want to tell us about the Summer Science Exhibition on the 3rd to the 8th of July at Carlton House Terrace? This is the Royal Society's Summer Science Exhibition and as we said in the last show a number of jobcasters will be down there helping out with the ALMA stand. So you should go along and check that out. I think Adam, Libby, Christina, Mark, and maybe a few others. I might be there as well. There are also going to be stands by the Herschel Space Telescope, and I think one on cosmic rays, and then obviously lots of other aspects of science, ranging from um, avalanche radar to insect birth control and even some robots playing football. So also uh, last month, um, there was a launch of a new satellite. Uh, this is an X-ray satellite called NewStar. And this is a, a small explorer mission, one of NASA's spacecraft. And um, it's going to be really awesome. It's the first time I've been involved with a satellite, and it's really exciting. So I watched the launch, and it's a really strange satellite because it launches from a rocket which is strapped to the bottom of an airplane. Ooh. Um, so it has to be really small to fit in the, inside the, the nose cone of this rocket. But when it gets into space, you want to have your optics and your detectors quite far apart. So it's got this boom that extends once it gets to space. And we're all sort of crossing our fingers and toes and eyes and everything, hoping this thing is actually <laughs> going to work. And it did. It worked beautifully. They've, they've used the same mechanism before on like space shuttle missions and things. So they, they've tried it in space and they know that it works. But still, there's a lot that can go wrong with it. Um, but this one worked perfectly. Um, so it extended uh, late last week, I think. Um, and it took its first light images yesterday. Um, and it worked. It's great. All the optics look look fantastic. And the image they they took, um, the first image they took was of Cygnus X1, um, which is a, a bright X-ray source in Cygnus, hence the name. Um, <laughs> and it's quite a nice little image. So this is the first time that images of this resolution have been taken in this high energy part of the X-ray spectrum. So this is going to hopefully show us all sorts of really cool, interesting new science. So Cygnus X1 is that the X-ray emission that you see because there's a black hole there? Yes, it's, it's a black hole in our galaxy. It's not the one at the centre of the galaxy, so it's a small stellar black hole um, that's really, really quite bright in the X-rays, which is why it's one of the first light targets, so that you can actually check that your detectors are working and that you're getting the counts that you expect. So, And from the first light image, everything looks good. They're, they're going to point at a few other uh, calibration targets over the next few weeks, uh, including, um, well, there's a few other sources in our galaxy, but 3C273 as well, a nice bright quasar that Jen knows lots about. Yay! And, yeah, and make sure everything's working and we're getting the results we expect, and then we start doing the science, which is the, the really exciting bit. There's a question I get asked a lot is how you see X-rays from black holes. So we should probably clarify, it's obviously not the actual black hole that's emitting the X-ray. Um, at least in supermassive black holes, which are the ones that I deal with, it's um, the matter, uh, the accretion disk falling into the black hole and it gets heated up and that emits X-rays. And I guess it's a similar thing in the smaller ones. Yeah, I think it's 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 an analog. It's yeah, a smaller version of the same kind of effects yeah. that are happening. 
Cool. So we'll link to that picture on the show notes. If you um, want to go look for it yourself, it was released yesterday. So that was the 28th of June. And someone else who's been extending his reach into space for many years and who's also high energy and full of cool new physics. Here is Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. Well, the Night Sky, July 2012. As darkness falls, Leo with the planet Mars and Virgo with the planet Saturn are setting low in the west. The bright star higher up towards the southwest is Arcturus, in Bootes the Huntsman. Just to the left of that is a lovely little circlet of stars called Corona Borealis, the Northern Crown. And further up and to the left we have the Keystone of Hercules, four bright stars. If you look about two-thirds of the way up on the right-hand side of the Keystone, with binoculars you should see a little fuzzy glow, which is a rather lovely globular cluster called Messier 13, the biggest and brightest we have in our northern hemisphere. And then further over we have this lovely region of sky. We have the small constellation of Lyra the Lyre with its bright star Vega. To its left and higher up we have Cygnus the Swan with its brightest star Deneb. And below we have Aquila the Eagle and its brightest star is Altair. The three of those make up what is called the Summer Triangle. And it's a very rich region of the sky. If you've got binoculars and you work your way up from Altair towards Vega, you find there's a fairly dark patch. It's called a Cygnus Rift, actually. It's a, a lot of dust preventing us to see the, the light from the Milky Way beyond. But in there is a very nice little asterism. It's called Brocky's Cluster. It looks like an upside-down coat hanger. Then over to the left of Altair is a very sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. There are four stars that make a little pentangle, which sort of the head of the dolphin, and three more stars make up the tail. As I saw one of those quite recently, it's actually very, very sweet. So quite a nice little bit of sky to see that summer region, Cygnus, Aquila and Lyra becoming more prominent as the evening goes on. And of course, in July, at least we have slightly longer nights. Well, what about the planets? Well, let's start with Jupiter. It's now visible in the pre-dawn sky, and it rises a couple of hours before the sun at the beginning of the month. On the 1st of July, it lies between the Hyades and the Pleiades clusters in Taurus, and in fact it's just a few degrees away from the planet Venus. They'll be seen together low in the east-northeast. It shines at magnitude about minus 2.1, and its angular size, about 35 arc seconds, gradually increases during the month. There is quite a highlight with Jupiter. We'll come to that later on. What about Saturn? Well, Saturn, like Mars, is now nearing the end of its apparition, and as July begins, is seen low in the west after sunset, shining at magnitude plus 0.7. It lies in Virgo, just five degrees north of the first magnitude star, Spica, or Alpha Virginis. Its disk is 17 arc seconds across, and the rings are about 13.5 degrees from the line of sight. Just to say, on July the 15th, it'll still be just about visible, and then it's 90 degrees east of the sun, which actually helps give it a rather three-dimensional look, and you get the shadow of the disk on the ring system looking rather nice. So perhaps it's still worth having a last look before it disappears behind the sun. Mercury can be seen shortly after sunset, during the first few days of the month, it reaches its greatest elongation, and that's when its angular separation from the sun is greatest, on July the 1st. However, its elevation in the west-northwest is only about 5 degrees, so it's not easily seen. You'll need binoculars almost certainly, but of course don't use those until the sun has set. It passes between the Earth and the sun on the 28th of July, that's called inferior conjunction. So it will reappear in the pre-dawn sky next month. Mars. It's moving eastwards through Virgo now, and sadly well past its best. The magnitude phase from plus 0.9 to plus 1 during the month. Its elevation is only 17 degrees as darkness falls, and by the end of July that's reduced to 6 degrees. At the same time its angular size is shrinking, down to about 6 arc seconds by the end of the month. So to be honest, all you'll really see 
as a pale salmon pink disk. Well, finally Venus. Well, it's reappeared in the pre-dawn sky and rises about an hour before sunrise. It shows quite a nice crescent phase. And there's a picture of that in the highlight section of the night sky page. Just put night sky into Google. It lies within the V-shaped Hyades cluster in Taurus, close to the star Aldebaran. Aldebaran actually is an interloper. It's only about halfway between ourselves and the stars that make up the Hyades cluster. Its angular size is dropping from about 42 to 31 arc seconds during the month. But at the same time, the percentage of the disk that's illuminated is increasing. And the interesting effect is that throughout most of its apparition, Venus stays at around minus 4.5 in magnitude because the increasing size corresponds to a reduction in the lit area and vice versa. So, finally, what about the highlights? Well, there aren't that many highlights this month. In early July, you still have a reasonable chance of seeing what are called noctilucent clouds. They're very high, about 80 kilometers altitude in the Earth's atmosphere, and appear as bright blue wisps above the north, northwestern, and northeastern horizons. And they're most obvious after midnight. Essentially, they're very high clouds illuminated by the sun, which, of course, is then below the horizon in the north, but not that far below. They are more prominent now than they were in the past. And it's thought it may be due to the fact there's more methane in the atmosphere that can dissociate into water, so there's water vapour at much higher altitudes in the atmosphere than there used to be. The first few days of July, we can see Venus and Jupiter in the pre-dawn sky, as I've said, between the Hyades and the Pleiades clusters. On the 7th, in fact, Venus is just one degree away from Aldebaran. should make a very nice skyscape or photograph. But perhaps the main highlight this month is on July the 15th before dawn. Because if you live in the right part of the UK, there's an occultation of Jupiter by the moon. So before dawn, on the morning of the 15th of July, we have a chance of seeing Jupiter very close to the crescent moon, both lying above the Hyades cluster, with Aldebaran and Venus below. If you live, however, in the southeast of the UK, Jupiter will be fully occulted. And here, from about 248 BST, first the satellites Europa and Io will disappear, followed closely by Jupiter itself. Over a period of about three minutes, Jupiter will be covered, and finally the satellites Ganymede and Callisto. Not long afterwards, in fact, Io will reappear, with Jupiter following on behind at about 0309. Now, it's a very shallow occultation, so quite where you are will depend very much on the times. I have put a little map on the night sky page showing you where you'll be able to see it. Below a line from sort of Suffolk down to Southampton, down to the southeast of that, you should see a full occultation of Jupiter and its moons. Between that line and one that sort of goes from Bristol up to Hull, you'll have a grazing occultation. Part of Jupiter will be covered. Above that, which is a lot of the UK and Scotland, of course, will just see it passing very, very close to the disk of the moon. Still, I think, a very attractive sight and one that I shall certainly aim to look out for. Finally, at the very end of the month, Saturn and Mars are very close together, just eight degrees apart. They're not very high in the sky, so not easy to see. But by the middle of next month, Mars will actually glide between Saturn and Spica, but by then it'll be very, very difficult to see. So it's not a brilliant month for exciting things, but try and look out for that occultation if you live in the right part of the UK. Best of luck. Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field with what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky. Kia ora and welcome to the July Jobcast from Carpenter Observatory. With the winter solstice now past, we are moving for the coldest part of our year. Hopefully, during this period, there will be clear skies, allowing us long nights of observing. Unfortunately, the weather here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, was not the best for observing the recent transit of Venus. A few places managed to have a partial view of the event between the clouds. In mid-June, the third International Starlight Conference was held at Takapo, home of Mount John Observatory. This conference announced the creation of the Mackenzie Starlight Reserve, which acknowledges the wonderful view of the starry skies as viewed from this region. 
At this conference, I, along with other delegates, had the opportunity to spend an evening at the summit of Mount John, observing the skies with the unaided eye and through a number of telescopes. We could see the natural sky glow, rather than light pollution, stretching around the horizon, along with the zodiacal light. This is the reflection of some of particles of dust along the ecliptic, appearing as a triangle of light on the eastern and western horizons. Unfortunately, we were not treated to an aurora, but we still had a stunning sky to view. This month, we have the brightest region of the Milky Way between Scorpius and Sagittarius in the southeast after sunset. With its bright star clusters in Nebula, it is a great region for observing with just your eyes, binoculars, or telescope. We can only see a small fraction of our galaxy through optical telescopes due to the intervening clouds of interstellar dust and gas. A number of methods are used to overcome this problem. By studying the orbital motion of stars as they orbit, we can estimate the size and mass of the galaxy. We can also use a variety of different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum to peer through the clouds. This allows us to study features that are invisible to optical telescopes. We now know that when we look along the Milky Way, we're looking at two of the spiral arms of our galaxy. Setting in the west is the Perseus arm, which runs towards the outer region of the Milky Way and behind the Sun's orbital motion. In the east, we look along the Sagittarius arm. This arm stretches inwards towards the centre of our galaxy. Our solar system and many of the stars visible in our sky belong to a small spiral arm, or spur, known as the Orion Cygnus arm. In many cultures, the Milky Way is seen as a heavenly powerful river across the sky. Sitting at the apex of our evening Milky Way is Crux, the Southern Cross. The smallest of the 88 official constellations, it has become an icon of the southern sky. It appears in various guises in the star lore of many cultures and on many flags, and even in some songs. It appears as a diamond kite shape of four bright stars, along with the fifth fainter star inside the kite. To Māori and Aotearoa, it is Tipanga, the anchor. To one side of Tipanga is a dark patch in the Milky Way known as the Colsac Nebula. This is a cold and dark cloud of interstellar material that may eventually form into a star cluster. Running along the Milky Way towards the east, we find the two bright pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri. These two bright stars mark the front hooves of Centaurus. This is a mythical creature with the body of a horse and a human torso with arms replacing the neck and head. Above the pointers and in front of the centaur is the constellation of Lupus, the wolf. In ancient times, this group of stars was seen as an animal being sacrificed by the centaur, Charon, on its altar, represented by the constellation of Ara, the altar. In later times, this unknown animal became seen as a wolf. Alpha Lupi is a blue giant star. Through parallax measurements, the Hipparchus mission estimates its distance at 460 light years, visible at magnitude 2.3. The star has an estimated mass 10 times that of our Sun and a luminosity of 25,000 times. With a mass of 8.8 .8 that of our star, the Sun, Beta Lupi is 10,000 times brighter than the Sun but it's closer to our Sun at 383 light-years away, making it appear as a magnitude 2.7 star. The age of the star has been estimated at 25 million years, and this star may soon, but not in our lifetime, become a red giant star. Nearby to Beta Lupi is the remnant of a star that literally exploded. In May 1006, a new star was seen to appear in the sky. Observed and recorded by many people around the world, this star was, at its brightest, visible in the daytime sky. Viewed low down in the south by the European, Middle Eastern and Chinese latitudes, this star was described as being two to three times larger than Venus and reached an estimated brightness of magnitude minus 7.5. The star faded over a three-month period before increasing in brightness again and then fading over an 18-month period. Astronomers now believe this star was a white dwarf that had slowly accreted mass from a companion star until it exploded, completely destroying itself. This type of explosion is called a Type 1a supernova. The remnant of this explosion was not discovered until 1965, and it's estimated to be 7,200 light-years away. In the southern hemisphere, this event would have been spectacular, with the star being much better placed for viewing. There are two faint globular clusters in Lupus, NGC 5824 and 5986, and two open clusters, NGC 5822 and 5749. You will need a medium-sized telescope and star chart to easily find them. In our own solar system, the planets Mars and Saturn can still be found in our evening sky. Mars has continued to fade over the last few months as it moves further away from the Earth. It will still be a bright orangey-red star in the constellation of Leo. Saturn is in the constellation of Virgo, not far from its brightest star, Spica. Saturn will have a yellow hue, while Spica is a blue-white colour. Saturn was also known as Kronos, the keeper of time and the harvest god, 
and the father of gods in Greek mythology. Very busy man. Through binoculars, you may see Saturn as having an elongated appearance. A small telescope should easily reveal the rings and the largest moon, Titan, and possibly some of the others. Mercury will be making an appearance low on our northwestern horizon during July. Look for an orange-coloured star and through a telescope you should better see a differing face over the period of time. Venus and Jupiter are in the morning sky and are visible as two bright stars and will remain close together throughout the month. Jupiter will reveal its four largest moons in binoculars and the cloud bands can be seen in a small telescope. To the north of Jupiter is a cluster of stars and its Pleiades, to Mari they are called Matariki. Thank you for listening in to our Jobcast and the team at Carter wishes you clear skies. Thanks for that, John. Now, on to the feedback. And, Jen, as you're the only one in Manchester, have we got any post? Yep, we've got one postcard from Neil Hickling, who was in New York City, and he made us all very jealous in the office when we got this, because he said he was on holiday in New York, he saw the Venus transit one night, and then the following day he saw the Space Shuttle Enterprise coming down the Hudson River and being lifted into the Intrepid Sea and Space Museum. And he's posted some pictures on our Facebook page as well of the Space Shuttle if you want to go and have a look. And Dave, it just reminded me, it's a very appropriate postcard for this show because it reminded me of two years ago when we were in Western Virginia recording the Jogcast on a bed. Yeah, it's true. We were, we were. It was great fun. And we went to see the Space Shuttle at the Air and Space Museum. It was a brilliant trip. It was great fun. Yay. Um, And also from Washington, D.C., Uh, Jack has emailed to say, just wanted to say thanks for a great show. You always inspire and intrigue this amateur. Thank you. On the emails as well, I'd just like to thank Lloyd for his email about the sound quality. We do appreciate that any interviews recorded at conferences will have a higher level of background noise, and we apologise for that. Uh, We'll take your comments on board for future episodes. And on the forum, we've had a comment from J.R. Edge. He says, I'm always impressed by the care and quality which goes into the answers Tim O'Brien does in Ask an Astronomer. Um, this is typical of the commitment given by the Jogcast team, rolling five years. So I think it's more like six now. And a half. Yeah. We're getting old, guys. I'm not. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, you have to remember that you, when I started at this university back in 2004, you were my first ever lab demonstrator. I know. And your error bars were shocking. Oh. <laughs> having, having read your thesis, I'm very pleased to see you've made a lot of progress. I hope I taught you something. Over on Facebook, Sharon Lester has said, Wonderful, with lots and lots and lots of exclamation marks. And on Twitter, Bill Keck 2 said, Who knew dust is so illuminating when it's usually so obscuring? The Jogcast in June, that's who. And we'd like to thank everyone for their retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter as well. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Uh, we've been doing quite a bit of reminiscing on this show. And one thing that... Jen has inflicted on other people, but never had oh, no. inflicted on her. Oh yeah, <laughs> is the leaving quiz. Oh no! Yeah, I thought I got away with that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh I'd no, 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 no. Just like to make you think you had. Yes. <sighs> <laughs> okay, so. <clears throat> you guys are aware I have the internet in front of me, right? Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I know. So let, let's start with, um, with, with some of the interesting questions. Uh, when did you last present the Jodcast? January 2012, I would assume, was my last one. Is the correct answer. Yes. How many episodes have you presented on? Oh, I know this because Mark's generated scripts. It's 53. It oh, should be 53. Now, it's 54. <laughs> ah, I'm not counting this one. <laughs> We've not finished yet. How many interviews have you conducted? Oh, Mark emailed me this as well this morning. 27, 28. I need your final answer. I'm just checking my email. <laughs> no, that's cheating. <laughs> it's just under 30, I know that. <laughs> it is 28. Yes. And according to the December 2011 Extra, what are the names of your two favourite galaxies? I have no idea. Was that in an intro? 
We can give you a clue. <laughs> as to, you know, why they might be your favourite galaxies. I don't know what my favourite galaxies are. They host the heaviest known black holes. Oh, yes, those ones. NGC something, 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 and NGC something, <laughs> something, something, something. Is the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> Can I point out that my actual favourite galaxies are M87 and the Andromeda Galaxy? I think the previous comment might have been slightly sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And finally, if Stuart is the Jodfather and Megan is the Fairy Jodmother, what does that make you? A very confused half-human, (laughs) half-fairy. I don't know. I made the Jodcast family tree once and then Megan and mm-hmm. Stuart shouted at me, so I've never revealed it in public. <laughs> <laughs> what does it make me? The Jod daughter, but yeah, the Jod daughter. Okay. That's, That's boring. Yeah. Megan. So one final question, and we have to ask, how many times have you said yay on the Jodcast? Um, too many. <laughs> <laughs> this is the correct answer. So that's your little quiz. I hope you appreciated it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks to, to Mark for coming up with uh, the questions for that. And also thanks to Jakob Paczynski, Ian Morrison and Paolo Padovani for the interviews. The editors were Jen Gupta, Claire Bretherton, Liz Guzman, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. And the producer was a strange combination of Libby Jones, Christina Smith and Jen Gupta. And so, until next time, when shall we three meet again? I don't know. (laughs) Probably so, yes. But, until then, jod on. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. We're going to need a bigger podcast.